0: What is up? Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I got a really exciting podcast that I want to talk about. And I'm so excited about it because uh, it was interesting because normally what I do whenever I, I put together a podcast is I... I so everything's always one take. Uh, and normally what happens is I have this doc file where I have several different topics. And normally when I have a thought, I'll go and I'll I'll, I'll do a bullet point on that topic so I got like something like 10 or 15 different topics that I'm thinking about at any given time. And there was this one topic that I had been really wanting to talk about, and I've been putting it off, and I decided this week was the week to talk about it. And yet, there's this new topic that I've become very passionate about uh, in the last couple of days that has now gotten me totally throwing it out the window. And, and I just want to talk on this different topic now that. Uh, hopefully I think they're both pretty interesting, but this one, I'm, I'm, it's really fresh in my mind and I really want to get some thoughts out there before I forget about it. And it's this whole concept of failure and, and, and the the bottom line being that it's okay to fail, which everyone's heard that before. Everyone knows that there's plenty, there's no shortage of people who will say things like it's okay to fail, right? Now we all know from experience that sometimes when we fail and in some circumstances the the consequences are different, right? I mean, if if my wife asks me to do the dishes and I don't and I fail in being a husband, she's not going to walk out the door, I hope. You know, she's not going to be furious at me. It's 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 there are not very many consequences to that other than dang, I should have done the dishes and been a good husband, right? There's other consequences where, you know, I think about, uh, there was some movie it's called, um, I think it's called Elizabethtown, which is like a total chick flick. I saw it years ago and <laughs> some of you are like, sure, sure. I watched it last night. <laughs> so it's, it's an old Orlando Bloom movie and it came out like right after his Lord of the Rings days. And so you're kind of like, oh, it's Legolas. Awesome. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, this is totally different. <laughs> but the movie opens up with it's, he's basically working for like something like Nike or some shoe company and has the shoe design that essentially there's some fatal flaw with it, and it totally tanks the company, like it ruins the whole company. That's a failure that has a bit higher, <laughs> the consequences are a bit more serious, and uh, yeah, you don't really get to walk away from that. But regardless of that, I really, I've, I've been thinking about this concept of, it, of it's okay to fail, and it's, and it's i i'm not just saying it to like convince you and like encourage you but but because i believe that environments where people are most successful is environments where it is okay to fail what's interesting is that places where it's not okay to fail you find people who not only are they living in fear but they're really not that productive right because Because any action can lead to, if you work for a company, can lead to your termination. Uh, Think about a relationship. I'm probably not going to have a very full and free marriage with my wife, Joy, if, you know, if I'm fearful of, oh my gosh, you know, I'm just imagining driving home and suddenly being seized with fear because it's like, oh, I didn't do the dishes. What is she going to say? What is she going to think about me? What is she going to tell my friends? What is she going to tell her friends? Fortunately, I don't have to live that way. But if I did, the quality of our marriage would probably be pretty different, right? And so I, I really want to hone in on this topic of it being okay to fail. And, and, and really what's got me thinking about it, I, I saw something that just totally blew my mind. I'm a massive NBA fan, like a diehard NBA fan. Uh, I'm reading the NBA Reddit every day. Um, I am a total drama queen when it comes to the NBA. Like I feast on the drama on like, well, what did KD say to Draymond and what did Draymond say to KD? If you're not a sports fan, you're just like, I have no idea what you're saying. But there's no shortage of great drama in the NBA, and it keeps it keeps the season pretty fresh because every team is playing eighty-two games in a season, and so there's quite a few games that are happening, but But also, the NBA is pretty engaging because any given night, you could have two totally dysfunctional teams that are playing against one another, and the game will be intense. It'll be awesome. It'll be incredible, which is different than what you see in other sports, right? I mean, you watch uh, Citadel versus Alabama in college football, and that's a pretty one-sided game. I'm in Arkansas. When you watch the Razorbacks play anyone, it's a pretty one-sided game. Hey, sorry, I just had to say it. So it's it's not like other sports where you see these teams who there just aren't there's there's weeks where there's just not really that much excitement on any given NBA night. Almost any game has the the opportunity to be pretty incredible. So I'm a massive NBA fan, and there's a couple of players in the NBA that even though they're in the NBA, they're known as awful free throw shooters and i don't mean just like they miss a shot every now and then i mean cuz cuz let's think about this the free throw you get up to the line it's called a free throw because it's a free throw it's 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 no one's guarding you you can you can just put it it should be an instant bucket instant points there's no excuse for not being able to make a free throw however what ends up happening is you have these players in the nba who are insanely athletic they're great in the paint. They're great right under the basket when it comes to a layup or a dunk or whatever. But they are not shooters. Usually 9 times out of 10, it's a it's what we call a big man. It's 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 the center or whoever who who they're so great at being aggressive near the basket that that is what has made them successful in the NBA. It's not their shooting ability. So as you can guess when these big men get on the free throw line, and they have no shooting ability whatsoever, they, it, it gets pretty embarrassing. And the original that people like to talk about is Shaquille O'Neal, who um, I always think of him as when he played on the Lakers. But back in the day, you had this thing called hack a where hack a was where players in, in games that were close, they would purposely foul Shaquille O'Neal because they knew he couldn't shoot a free throw. And so they would purposely foul so that the free throw shots would go up, he would miss, and it would go back then to the other team so they could widen their advantage. And since then, this is actually a pretty common strategy. It's actually a really annoying strategy when you're watching a game. But so I'm a massive OKC fan. We have uh, Andre Robertson, who's phenomenal on defense, great player, but just like Shaquille O'Neal, cannot shoot a free throw. And so in the playoffs, you'll see people who will foul him on purpose. You'll see that with Markel Fultz. Uh, one of the players in the last five years who was this player was DeAndre Jordan. And DeAndre Jordan played with the Clippers. And when he played for the, with the Clippers, the Clippers were they were they were a pretty good team. And but DeAndre Jordan, he had a free throw percentage of forty four percent. So he's not even making half of his shots. I mean it's it's a struggle, right? I mean this guy is he's he's putting up 44% and so as you can imagine just like we saw with Shaquille O'Neal, you have teams that when they're in close games, they're just fouling DeAndre Jordan and it's pretty it's pretty embarrassing, right? I mean it's 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 pretty embarrassing. Imagine being in the NBA, you're in the most professional league in basketball, you know, there's nothing higher than this, right? And you can't hit a single free throw. And just imagine like the pressure on this too. Right? Imagine the pressure of we are going to lose this game because of me. In fact, what, what typically happens in these situations in, in these situations is the coach will actually take the player out and put him on the bench. And so now you've taken and it's it's a pretty brilliant strategy from the competitor because now you've literally removed this this insane player from the team because he's too much of a liability. I mean, imagine what that does to a person when you don't even get to play because you're so bad. You're great at everything else, but you're so bad at free throws that it's costing the game. Well, so what got me thinking about this topic of it's okay to fail is I was was randomly just reading some NBA news yesterday, or maybe it was Monday night, and I saw this statistic that DeAndre Jordan, who now plays for the Mavs in Texas, His free throw percentage is higher than anyone else on his team, which, I mean, that's a headline right there. I mean, everyone knows who DeAndre Jordan is, anyone who watches the NBA. So that's, 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 I'm thinking clickbait, right? I mean, this, this can't be, this can't be true. Higher than anyone else. So I do a little digging. His free throw percentage this season is 81%. He's almost doubled it from what it was when he was with the Clippers to now with the Mavs. And I thought, wow, this is pretty incredible. And what was interesting is I started watching videos and I was doing a little bit of research because my, my natural inclination was, sounds like he's got some great coaching. I instantly went to the leader, right? I went to who's teaching him, who's coaching him, you know, who is the person who essentially is helping him make that kind of jump. But what I found wasn't that this phenomenal coach has now started teaching him What I found instead was that his game had evolved to be kind of quirky. And what I mean by quirky is as soon as he's fouled, he has to go touch the ball. Like he has to go put his hands on it, which I thought was kind of weird. And so wherever the ref is, I mean, he's going to just to put a hand on the ball and start, I guess, getting his mental, his mental game ready. And you'll even see some clips where players will like knock the ball away to keep him from touching it, to like throw him off his game. But, the, but, but that's not really even what's the most interesting thing. The fascinating thing is when he gets up to the line and he's about to take his shot, he does something that I've actually, I've never seen anyone else do. He talks to all of his teammates. And so, so imagine you're at the free throw line. And so you have your, your teammates on the left and the right. And he looks at each one of them and he says one question. He says, who do you got? Who's your man? Who do you got? And he asks this to each person. And so he goes down the line. He says, who do you got? And they point to the player that they're defending. And as you know, if you've ever played basketball, when the free throw goes up, these people who are on the sides, your job is to box out the player next to you so that if the ball bounces off the rim, if it doesn't go in, you keep the opposing team from getting the rebound. And you can get the rebound and you can reset. And now you have a new offensive play you can run. And so he does this every single time. He looks at his teammates and he says, who do you got? Well, what, what just instantly struck me as I was watching this is that the Mavs, and I don't know if he just figured this out on his own or if a coach told him this, but the Mavs have made it okay for him to fail. They've made it okay for DeAndre Jordan to fail. And the really crazy thing that's happened is that his free throw percentage has almost doubled because of it this this weird quirky thing now I mean even think about this this is all mental because his players it's not like (laughs) these are professional players it's not like they're lining up and they have no you know I don't really know who I have I'm just kind of standing here it's not like they have no idea and they're waiting for DeAndre Jordan to ask oh yeah who do I have oh I guess I have this person they all know who they have this is purely for DeAndre Jordan They know who they have, but what's happening is what they're communicating is they're saying, if you miss this free throw, I got you. I got you covered. I got you. I got this man covered. I got this man taken care of. If you miss, I'm going to be there to catch the ball. That's essentially what the teammates are saying, and I and I, I my mind just exploded as I was reading about this because I was thinking, I was just thinking of what this, the implication of this for us in real life in the workplace, right? When it becomes a situation where it's okay to fail, you would think that. And there's actually there's been some bosses who've told me that, and they have kind of this hard nosed mentality that people will slack off. That, oh, well, they'll just catch me anyway. I don't really have to try that hard. And maybe that's maybe that's the case in some circumstances. But what actually has happened for the Mavs is it's made a player who was their worst free-throw shooter and made him the best. Pretty incredible. Made him the best. So what's happened is it's actually made him more successful. The, tr- the, the same is absolutely true for, for us. When we live in an environment where it's okay to fail, we actually become more successful. Because bottom line, when it's no longer safe to fail, we no longer take any risks. Think about the, the 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 biggest companies in the world, especially the ones that they're sort of bound to shareholders. You know, like how will our decisions affect the stock prices? How will our decisions affect customer trust in us? It's, it's, it's exactly why you see these massive companies like Sears go on to fail because they can no longer take risks. And I think it's interesting, you know, when we talk about this topic of innovation, how do you innovate? How do you create what's next? How do you reach the market? and disrupt the market in a way that no one else is doing. And the bottom line is you have to innovate. You have to be willing to try and take risks. But the ironic thing is that companies where it's not okay to fail, you can't take risks. And I'll, I'll never forget, there was a boss I had who talked about this concept of crystal balls and rubber balls. And he was talking about your employees and how you know, there's there's things that they can screw up that will ruin the company. Those are the crystal balls. Those are the things that you don't give them the opportunity to fail in. I mean, you do. You spend all of your energy. I mean, now you don't stand on the sidelines and you say, gee, I hope you really don't screw this up. But you you walk alongside them because you don't want them to screw that up. Then there's other things that are rubber balls that if they do mess it up, it's OK. It's not a big deal. They can learn from it. They can grow from it. But what's so fascinating, I think the reason that it's so hard for us to be okay with this beyond like a a financial standpoint, I think we as people really struggle with failure. We struggle with failure. And I had an old friend, his name was Gary Swires. I say old, not because he's actually super old, but because I haven't talked to him in forever, but he would always talk about this concept of failure. And he would say, people don't really fear failure. He's like, well, yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, a lot of people fear failure, right? I mean, there's there's a whole population of people, maybe I'm in this group, I'm not sure, where there's there's constant anxiousness around, geez, I really don't want to fail. I really don't want to screw this up. I really don't want to mess this up. What would this mean about me, right? But he said, people don't really fear failure. What they fear is shame and blame, and it got me thinking about this, right? Because I it, it, that resonated with me. Because it's like if you fail in a situation where no one knows, the stakes aren't quite high enough for you to really, you know, be stuck on that or be 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 captured by that failure and, and be unable to move forward. The failures that hurt the most are the ones that everyone sees. I mean, think about the the you know, a player in a track event who trips and falls right before the finish line. I mean, I feel like there's a collective cringe because it's like, yeah, we all saw that. And oh my gosh, the, just the, just the embarrassment, right? But it got me thinking that today beyond any other day, it's harder than ever to be an entrepreneur because this whole social media era, our lives are, are essentially on display for anyone to see. Right. So the opportunity to be blamed or to be rejected or to be uh, for someone to think of us a certain way is so much greater now than ever before. And I think it's actually what it's doing is it's making us fearful of failure more than ever. It's like I remember I remember uh, this is such a weird, random example. But when I was in college, I was dating a girl who she she didn't want to put our relationship on Facebook because she was like, well, if we break up, then we'd have to have the notification that we're no longer together. And that would be really embarrassing. And which I was like, wow, I mean, you really have high expectations for this, (laughs) for this relationship. Right. But that always struck me that someone would be unwilling to make something public because what would people think if this didn't work out, if we failed at this? Right. And actually it, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I was at, in church a couple weeks ago and, the pastor was saying he was talking about the the biggest fears in life, and he was saying how, you know, notoriously what you always hear about is uh, two fears, the fear of death and the fear of public speaking. Right. And these are very real fears. In fact, there's people who will they'll talk about how they'll do anything except public speaking. They will not get in front of people. They won't they won't do that. But he was saying how actually those two have been replaced in today's culture with a new number one fear, and it's the fear of rejection. And I think that that really resonated with me because I thought about this and I was thinking, you know, really in today's social media era, that's absolutely true. It's actually what keeps businesses from being active on social media because what will people think about my post? I mean, even I I go through it, you know, I put something on, on, I would love just to be totally free natured and just post whatever on Instagram, but there's this creeping thing in the back of my mind. That's like, well, people think about this. What will they say about this? What will they, wow, that this guy's pretty stupid, right? I mean, these, these random kind of even nonsensical things that we sometimes worry about before we go and say and do something, right? The fear of rejection is powerful. And I think when it comes to being a risk taker and putting yourself in a position to fail, that shame, blame, and rejection are powerful deterrents that keep us from actually failing. So so what's at risk here, right? I mean, what's why can't we just live a life that is totally... Um I'm avoiding fear of failure. I'm avoiding failure in general. I'm going to play it safe. The issue is that you rob yourself from the fulfillment of the life you could be living, but from a job perspective, if you're a boss where you don't let people fail, you're robbing them from an opportunity to be as productive and high-performing as they could possibly be. Now, we see this in the NBA example. You have a shooter like DeAndre Jordan who, when the fear of failure is present, he's shooting 44%. When the fear of failure, when, when you have people who are saying, hey, I got you, when that gets replaced, he jumps up to 81%. But if we think about ourselves as people Think about a work environment where you cannot fail, you will not take risks because you don't want to get fired, what are people going to think of me, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I always think about when I was in high school, I worked at this bakery and I still talk about it, it was like one of the greatest jobs I've ever had, this random cashier job at a bakery and I love this place. It was so cool. It was so fun to work there. In fact, whenever I went on to college, tell me how wild and, and, and just stupid this is. When I went on to college, when I would come back from college, I would actually come to the bakery and I would tell my boss, the owner, I would say, I will work this weekend. If, so if, I, if I'd be back home for the weekend, I'd say, I'd love to work this Saturday for free. I just, I just want to come and work. That's how much I believed in this company is I was so committed to, to what it stood for in my experience there that, that I was actually willing to give my time for free. Now, some of you business owners are like, wow, tell me how to get that with my people, right? I mean, it sounds totally nonsensical, but I was so bought in and I, I was thinking about why was I so bought in? And Really at one point in my, when I was working there, I I got a promotion from, instead of doing, del- instead of being a cashier, I got put on delivery. And you may not know this, but a lot of restaurants that have like uh, dinner rolls or bread or whatever, a lot of these restaurants, they don't actually make it in house. They actually buy it from a local bakery. And that was the same for us as a bakery is we actually deliver to all of the major restaurants in the area. And so I got, I got uh, promoted to this position where now was delivering the bread, and there was quite a bit of trust put in this because this might be kind of surprising, but bread ain't cheap, <laughs> especially a lot of bread is not. In fact, the company called their bread gourmet bread, which I don't I don't know what I don't know what gourmet bread is other than it tasted freaking good. I mean, it was so good, so I kind of get it, but at the same time, you know, you're you're probably paying something like I don't know, maybe five or six bucks for a loaf of bread which actually now, I don't even know what, what that is now um, compared to what it was back then. But So of all the clients we had, of all the customers we had, we had this one customer and it was called the Elotion and it was this golf resort. And there was, there was a lot of intrigue. And I honestly, to this day, I don't know what's true about the, the rumors about this place, but there was so much intrigue about this resort because it had, it had a very um, particular member list you couldn't just you couldn't just go golf there. You had to be someone to golf there. And it was located like, I don't know, ten or fifteen miles outside of town. So you had to go out into the woods even to get there. And it, it had this big gate. You couldn't just walk in. Um it had a guard post. There were guards actually all through the establishment. There was rumors of like there being a helicopter pad and how like presidents, when they were visiting the town, they would come to this golf club and how it was just, it was just a really high class, like you, you didn't just go there. You couldn't just go there. In fact, there was so much intrigue around it that I remember I had a friend who, and I don't know if he was messing with me at the time, but I had a friend who actually got a job there and I was like, man, so are, are the things true? And he'd be like, sorry, I can't really talk about it. <laughs> you know? And, and so you have these people who they're, they're just, they're, they're just, they're, they're totally milking the the prestige and mystery of this place. But so we got them as a customer. And and so my job was to take the delivery of bread out there. Well, being a high school student, as you can guess, I was pretty stupid, right? Like most high school students. So I take the bread out there and I... Um, there's a lot of like, whenever you're delivering bread, it sounds kind of silly, but you have to be very careful as you're driving. You have to be easy on the turns because in the back of the truck, the bread will shift. And as you can expect, the bread will smash. Well, so I was running behind taking bread from one place. I was supposed to go to the Elotion and then I was supposed to go to this other restaurant and I was just really in a hurry. And so I'm, I'm kind of booking it out there. It's a little bit of a drive out there and and I think also at the time when I was in high school, if you if you finished your delivery route early, you could go home. And so, being like a lazy high school student, I was like, you know, woohoo! I can get off work early if I finish up these these deliveries. So I had two deliveries left. I had the lotion, this other restaurant. Well, I go out there, and I I get there and I'm I'm taking the bread out and I realize, oh my gosh, I've smashed some of this. Well, so being a great a great um, honest person. I just, I just dropped it off. I didn't say anything and I didn't even know who to talk to anyway. I mean, this place was just, just scary in general to be out there, but I just thought to myself, I'll just tell my boss and be like, look, I messed up. I'm really sorry. I smashed some of the bread. My bad. So I drop it off. I go to the next restaurant and it totally hits me when I get to this next restaurant that the bread that I'm delivering to them is not the right bread. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. I've, I've loaded the truck wrong. Well, I start thinking more about it, and I realize I didn't just load the truck wrong. The bread that was supposed to go to this restaurant should have gone to the elotion. and what I delivered to the elotion should have gone to this next restaurant. And these restaurants, it's, it's towards 5 o'clock. They're actually about to open for dinner. It's too late for me to go back and switch them. It's just not going to happen. And so I'm thinking I have totally screwed up these two customers, one of them being the Elotion. Well so I get back to the restaurant or back to the bakery and I'm I'm already super nervous, right? And I walk in and the owner, of course the owner is like right there. <laughs> he's right there ready to greet me and and I just know he already knows. I mean he's already gotten a phone call. He's already been chewed out over the phone. And this guy, this owner his name's Jim and Jim is like he's like a bear. Um actually that's a terrible. <laughs> that's a terrible example. He's like a teddy bear. I mean he's a he's a really kind, gentle, awesome leader really great guy to work for, really trusting. You know, he probably put me in this delivery job before I was necessarily maybe old enough or experienced enough to do it, but he believed in me. Right. And so he had given me an opportunity, but being such a gentle person, I'd never heard him curse. I've never heard him cuss. You know, he just was such a kind person. Well, so I walk in and he's, he's standing there. And I, again, I can see it on his face. He knows, and I know he knows because I can just tell. So I walk up and I'm kind of hanging my head and I, I say, um, Hey Jim, I'm, sure. You probably heard. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. So I kind of messed up this delivery and he nods and he goes, yep. You effed up pretty bad. And he just drops the F bomb. And I'm just shocked. I mean, I've never heard this guy cuss and he's like, you effed up pretty bad. And I, I just frozen. And I, I look at him and I just, I go, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. But what was interesting was I mean, losing the lotion as a, as a customer would have been a pretty big deal. And and we didn't, but what was interesting was whatever anger or frustration he was feeling, he totally put it aside And his response. I've never forgotten. I mean, I'm 30 years old. I've worked in a lot of different places. I've never forgotten this response at this random high school job. He said, you have to up pretty badly. And I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. His next action was he just smiled and he nodded and he said, it's Okay. And then he just went back to work. That was it. That was literally it. There was no reprimand, there was no how could you screw this up? There was no, you know, hey, I'm going to from now on I'm going to load the truck with you. There was nothing like that. He just says, "It's okay." <laughs> Smiles and walks away. That was it. That was it. And I I remember just kind of standing there like, "Uh, okay." Well, the, the interesting thing is it made me now want to do more for him. It was like I'd been given like a pass and now it was like I wanted to do better for him. But but I've never forgotten that moment because what it communicated to me was it's okay to fail here. I have a boss who trusts me, who cares about me, who wants what's best for me. It's okay to fail. And it's part of the reason that that whenever I would come back, I would want to work there for free because this among several other things it, it, it communicated to me that this was a place I could trust, that I I wanted to give back to. And I and I didn't owe that to them, right? I mean, they owe me a paycheck. <laughs> but I wanted to give my time because I believed in them so much. And I think about, you know, really, and, and in fact, whenever I became a teacher, I, I was a high school teacher for a brief time. And we would talk about this concept of it's called, it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And you're actually seeing this in conversation and leadership now. But you have this concept of it's this guy Maslow came up with this theory of what does every person need in order to be incredibly successful? And so he has this pyramid. You should Google it. He has this pyramid and it's just like the food group pyramid of like, what do you need the most of at the bottom? And then what do you need the least of at the top? But in his case, it's it's actually like a progression pyramid where it's like in order to get to the top, which the top he calls self actualization and basically what he means by it is you being a person who you've you've realized your potential and you're living it out. You're being high performing. You are, you're being all, I mean I always just envision myself like at the gym because I hate the gym so much. I hate running so much so that whenever I envision myself as like the ultimate form of myself, for whatever reason all I think of, I don't think about like speaking in front of people. I don't think about like being being wildly successful, I just envision myself. I'm at the gym. <laughs> successful Blake is Jim Blake. But so, self-actualization is basically this, this version of yourself where you're you're running on all cylinders. Excuse me, you're firing all cylinders. You're running in full form. You're doing a great job. Well, to get to that point, you have to meet the layers below it. And at the very bottom, you have uh, and the first thing he talks about that every people everything that we need is people. What he has at the bottom is like food and drink, like the most primitive of needs. But right above that, he writes safety. And I want to hone in on that concept of safety for a second, because, you know, whenever he first created this, it was kind of like, what do we like tribally, like what do we primitively just deep in our nature? What do we need to be successful? You know, obviously we need food and drink. Um, the reason it's important in education is it's it's served as the reasoning behind why sh- why why we should provide breakfast for students, uh, especially in demographics where they can't they aren't getting breakfast in the home, but also creating an environment where people are safe. And you're seeing it a lot now in leadership circles where people are talking about how do you create an environment where it's safe. Now, one obviously you you want to have physical safety for your employees. But think about an environment where where people feel emotionally safe. I feel like I can trust the people around me. I feel like I can trust my boss. It's actually why I hate the term soft skills because it implies that it's like optional or that it's like just a suggestion. But I, I had a boss one time who talked about, he talked about how like in your job as a leader. You know, you have these responsibilities, like the things you very literally have to do. It's part of your job description. You think about like the bullet point list, but then you have these other things that, that are, um, not on your job description that involve, you know, building trust with people, building relationships, you know, building these, this environment of safety for your employees. And what he talks about, my old boss would say that if you're not doing those things, you're not even doing half of your job. You know, it's the weight of leadership. It's what you owe to your people. And what's interesting is that there's environments where bosses, they expect their people to achieve these incredible results, but there's no safety in the environment. There's, there's, there's a culture of fear. There's a culture of mistrust. Who's going to report on me if I screw up? What is my boss going to do to me if I mess up? You know, and in some circumstances, my, my paycheck is on the line not even just getting fired, but, but you have some work environments where the way they dictate your money is based on your metrics. And so why would I be a risk taker in my environment if it's going to affect my ability to pay my mortgage? Right. And it makes me think of, there was a leader I was talking to who he was talking about his people. And he said, the number one thing I never want my people to worry about is how will they pay their mortgage at the end of the month? which seems really simple, but it's, it's powerful, right? It's, it's, it's as you think about the things that worry us and stress us, if that's one less thing we can check off the box, then, then, then you're, you're so much more capable of being the high performer that you're, you've always been, had the potential to be right. And, and so I mentioned this a little bit earlier but especially as we talk about being competitive in the workplace as we talk about your business being competitive against other businesses what's so interesting is this culture of fear and I'm not even I'm not even talking about between employees even like on the standpoint of competing in the marketplace against other businesses when you're bound to shareholders when you're bound to being incapable of taking risks you can't attain that full potential, that self-actualization. You cannot be the high performer, you know, the 81% free throw shooter that you've always been capable of being. And it's really what happened with Amazon, right? Whenever Amazon took over, because Sears, and I've talked about this before, Sears had 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 the opportunity to start the Amazon marketplace a decade before Amazon ever started. But they were so fearful of innovation, what will happen? What's at risk that they were incapable of actually taking the steps. Amazon, on the flip side, what's so interesting, you have this dude in a garage who his philosophy is, well, if it fails, it fails. I mean, I haven't made any money. I have nothing really to lose. And so his incentive to innovate was so much greater than Sears. And what's crazy is 10 or 20 years later, they have totally overtaken the marketplace, right? So when it comes to actually being a competitive company, you have to be willing to take risks and innovate and be willing to, to disrupt the market, even if you totally screw it up. I remember there's a great book called Good to Great, and they talk about the, the, the best companies in our, in our last century, really. And they talk about this one company that was a steel mill, and they had all these steel plants. And they realized that their their market was really it was really minimizing, or they were maybe losing their competitive edge. and so they, they made the wild decision. they had this other market in a, in a different element of the business. They made this wild decision to focus all on that market and get rid of the steel mills. And this company had been known for their steel mills for decades. And so there was this board meeting or some executive meeting where the CEO said, you know, one morning, sell the mills, get rid of the mills. We're going to take this risk. And what was totally nonsensical at the time is what catapulted catapulted the business into incredible success. But beyond just the, beyond just the, the business standpoint, we have to be people who can take risks, who can get over the fear of failure, who can get over what people think, because when we don't embrace failure, we rob ourselves from opportunities to grow. Failure, you know, when we're faced with our shortcomings, those are the things that help us see our blind spots. It's what helps us see um, the opportunities to actually move forward and develop ourselves. Because, I mean, life is such a journey. Who I am today as a 30-year-old, if that's the same person I am when I'm 50 or 60, I've done screwed up. Right? I mean, I've I have screwed up if I am the same person I am today 20 or 30 years down the road. My hope would be 20 or 30 30 years down the road that I would be more patient, I'd be a better listener, I'd be a better thinker, I'd be I'd be a better encourager. And then now the consequences of that is I have a fuller marriage, I have a fuller life, I have better friendships. But but our failures, they're opportunities for us to actually grow and develop. There's this thing called a 360 that, that you, you, it's called a 360 because essentially what happens is you ask people who know you best to evaluate you and rate you. And they rate you from one to five. And then they write some comments about what they think about you. And it's amazing the amount of pushback that people give to that opportunity. They say, I don't want to take that. I don't want to do that. Why? Because I don't want to know what people really think about me, which is a different mindset, right? There's, it's it's you're robbing yourself from the opportunity to grow. I remember when I hit 21, and it's you know it's everyone knows it's like a big big birthday. Now I've never been a, a a big drinker at all, so for my 21st, I wasn't wanting to like go out and hit the bars. But what I was wanting to do was to do a big dinner with all of my friends. And I remember my 21st birthday, I, I had two roommates. And we went out to eat. And I remember asking, you know, who's going to be there? Who's going to show up? And no one came except for my roommates. And it really ate me up inside. I remember thinking, uh, no one's coming to my birthday. This sounds so childish, by the way, <laughs> now that I'm talking. No one came to my birthday party. But but really, when you, when you back up here and you think about, about this whole thing, so in college, I was super sarcastic. And I'm still sarcastic today, but I was super sarcastic with people. And in my mind, I thought, man, I'm hilarious. People love sarcasm. Well, I remember thinking on my 21st birthday, I need to be better friends with people. It wasn't like anger to people. It wasn't like, how dare you not show up for my birthday? It was like it was like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat and realizing my sarcasm is damaging my relationships, relationships to the point where... I don't, I'm not enjoying a life of deep friendships. I'm not enjoying a life where I have these full friendships that are just contributing to my life and I'm contributing to theirs. And I, I finally saw a blind spot that I had never seen before. And that was how toxic my sarcasm was. And so my willingness to see my failure in friendships is what has now empowered me with my friendships today to think of it as how can I give more to this person than what I take from them. You know, I feel like I'm a better friend today because of those opportunities when I was younger. It makes me think of when I was, I was working for a boss one time, his name was Steven. And and to this day, Steven has, has been one of the greatest mentors in my life, just a phenomenal person, but he was a very hard person to work for. He was so, um, he had such high standards that it was very easy to screw up with him. In fact, I don't know if he had a culture where it was okay to fail, uh, which, you know, every leader has their flaws, right? But regardless of that, he had such high standards and I really looked up to him and really the person I am today, like 99 percent is because of his his impact on my life. But so I remember this this one uh, couple of months when I was working for him, people were so fearful of of screwing up in front of him. That well, what happen would be if you messed up, he would bring you in his office and th- these these conversations between you and him were so sort of, uh, they had such a reputation that we called them Stephen talks. So it'd be like, you know, imagine being at the water cooler and, and being like, yeah, I had a Stephen talk today <laughs> and it'd be like, oh no, what happened? What'd you do? You know, and it'd be like, and you know, it'd be things like, um. So this was a summer camp. And so we had like a rifle reactivity, you know, where you're doing uh, target practice. And so the counselor would be like, yeah, I accidentally pointed the gun at the kid. It really wasn't a good deal. And then Stephen would happen to be there at the same time. And so the Stephen talk would be like, you know, hey, let's not kill our campers. That might be a good idea. But these conversations were so candid and direct that they kind of felt kind of devastating. Right. So everyone was kind of fearful of these Stephen talks. Well, what was interesting was there was this one summer, this one couple of months where we were like four or five weeks in, and it's like a nine or 10-week summer. We're like four or five weeks in, and I hadn't gotten a Stephen talk yet. And I remember Stephen was like, he had just finished a Steven talk with someone and they were walking out. And I think, I don't know why this, I, I have no memory really of this, but I always envision like someone just crying as they're walking out and like wiping the tears away. And, <laughs> and then being like, all right, who's next? You know, uh, which he was not. He was not that kind of person. He was not like looking to rip people apart, but um, it's just sort of like how I've dramatized it in my head. But he had just finished a Steven talk with someone. They walked down and he walks out and I'm sitting there and I make some jokes, something like, um, I, I said something to him like, oh, you just had another Steven talk or, or something like that. And he, you know, made some comment and was like, oh yeah, I guess so. Um, cause you know, he didn't, he didn't relish in it, but he was like, yeah, I guess so. Well, so the comment I made after that was since I hadn't had a Steven talk yet, I kind of braggadociously was like, yeah, you know, I haven't had a Steven talk. And he was like, hmm, okay. And then I followed it up with, and I hope I never do this summer. And he kind of looked at me kind of quizzically and was like, that's surprising you would say that. And I was like, well, uh, (laughs) why is that surprising? And he says, that's just, it's kind of a foolish mindset. And I remember him saying, we had this conversation where he talked about, you know, whenever he's in the room, how I don't want to screw up in front of him. And he said, man, Blake, I, I hope you would want me to catch you every time you mess up which sounds kind of backwards, right? I mean, you don't want to screw up in front of the boss, but really what he was communicating when he said, catch me every time was he was saying, Blake, these conver he really flipped it on its head. These conversations aren't to burn you. These conversations are to bolster you and help you see your shortcomings and help you see your mistakes so that you can be a better person. And I remember thinking back to the best employees that ha- had worked there were the people who had been in multiple conversations with Stephen. And it changed my philosophy. You know, it wasn't like this fear of failure where Stephen wanted to rip me apart. It was these really candid, direct conversations where he wanted to see me better. But what's, the reason I'm telling this story is, again, whenever we talk about failure, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to get better. And so rather than thinking of it as, I hope I never fail, the healthy mentality, the growth mentality is, and this <laughs> sounds kind of silly, but I hope I fail every time. Now, obviously you don't want to fail every time. You don't want to screw up every time, but, but I hope I fail. Seriously, this year, I hope I fail. I hope I'm not successful in literally everything I touch because if I am, I will miss the opportunity to grow and develop and become the person that I'm capable of being. And I envision, like, I envision like the people you meet who are at the end of their lives who are just so phenomenal. I mean, they can just grip a crowd. They have so much wisdom. They have so much they want to share. And it just, it totally blows your mind how much they know. And not just knowledge. I'm talking about like impact and empowerment. And you listen to this person, and you're like, man, I want that. I want to have that impact. I want to be able to do that, right? I want to, I want to be able to help people and grow people like that. Well, the, the thing that's not sexy about leadership is that to get to that point, it takes a lot of failure. It takes a lot of being faced with your failures and your shortcomings and recognizing, man, I've screwed up. I've messed up but here's how I'm going to grow from it. So for you, wherever you're at, my encouragement to you, first of all, if you're a business owner, you got to let your people fail. You got to, you have to build an environment of trust where people, you know, when someone screws up, it's not, yeah, Blake screwed up again. I can't stand that person, but Hey, you know what? You screwed up. I got you. And the thing about Deandre Jordan at the line, who's got me, who's got me covered. Hey, I got you. I got you. If you screw up, I got you. So building that culture of trust and growth where people can actually be productive, they feel safe, they can be who you know they can they can live out their potential. But you specifically as a person, I want to encourage you to embrace your failures. Don't fear failure. It's okay to fail. Embrace your shortcomings and become better that is how we become a person who makes a worldwide impact. I'm not, I'm not saying that cliche. I'm not saying that to be, to be, you know, um, uh, t- in terms of hyperbole, you know, like go be a world changer, Woo-hoo. you know, I'm but, but to really have an impact that's beyond just the people who are right next to you. Cause when you think about your legacy, right, you think about your legacy that you're leaving when you're, when you die and that tombstone goes up and people write whatever they write about you. That legacy is not something you start making at the end of your life. You're, you're building it today in order to have that legacy of impact to make this world a better place than when we found it. We have to embrace our failures. We have to have the mentality of catch me every time, help me see it every time because I want to get better and I want to have a greater impact. All right. That's all I got for today. Uh, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Enjoy your Turkey day. Enjoy your black Friday. Don't go too crazy. Uh, or you can be like me and just be a people watcher where you, you go out on black Friday just to see what kind of people come out of the woodwork. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, enjoy your time. I'll catch you later. Have a great week. See ya.